Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I once had a conversation with Don Letts, one of the guys who followed the rise and fall of The Clash back in the day. He has a theory. He says that the average useful lifespan of a band is about seven or eight years. Their career starts with them rising out of nowhere, running on nothing more than adrenaline and passion. At some point around year four or five, they peak. But after that, though, things begin to fall apart. Personalities conflict. Artistic baggage starts to interfere with the development of new ideas. Money problems, girlfriend problems, drug problems. And this leads to the inevitable breakup. Now, The Clash certainly followed that template. So did The Beatles and The Smiths. And Nirvana was right on schedule until Kurt ended things rather dramatically. But then there are the exceptions. Pearl Jam. They've existed since 1991. Radiohead started in 1989. U2 has been around since 1976. Same with The Cure. When it comes to Canadian bands, there's Finger Eleven. Their history dates back at least 20 years. 5440 goes all the way back to 1981. Teenage Head had been around since 1975 before singer Frankie Venom died last year. I guess what I'm getting at is that many of us can't imagine a world in which some of these bands do not exist. I mean, they've always just sort of, you know, been there for us. Also in this mix is Sloan. They were formed in 1991. Now, can you imagine a Canadian rock scene without Sloan? Can you remember a Canadian rock scene that didn't feature Sloan? It's tough, isn't it? And I think it's time to let them tell their story. In their own words, too. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Sloan from their 1996 album, One Chord to Another, Everything You've Done Wrong. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is a show on how a record store clerk, a saxophone player born in Northern Ireland, a former provincial high school high jump champion, and a model for Winnie the Pooh sleeping bags in the Eaton's catalog came together to become one of this country's most enduring rock bands. I had a chance to sit down with Chris Murphy and Jay Ferguson of Sloan, so they could tell their band's life story. And the results were pretty cool. For example, let's just start with this. Which of the guys got to model the Winnie the Pooh stuff? It was Chris. I did. As a kid, I modeled Winnie the Pooh sleeping. Well, I was in the, like the Eaton's in the Sears catalog. And a couple of commercials, Snyder's Bacon. There's the one of me taking the bacon off the table. And in 1855, James Schneider made only top, used only top quality meats. And then I'm the kid who steals the bacon. That ran for about five, six years. Just like Eddie Vedder. He was a child model, too. He even ended up in a long-forgotten Canadian film called The Silent Partner. All that before he got out of grade one. And just so we can fill in all the blanks, Patrick Pentland was the guy who was born in Northern Ireland. He also lived in Jamaica before his family finally settled in Sackville, Nova Scotia. Jay Ferguson was the record store clerk. It was a second-hand shop in Halifax. And drummer Andrew Scott was the former holder of several provincial track and field records in Nova Scotia. He was also voted one of Canada's 20 sexiest musicians. 
Before there was a Sloan, there was a bunch of other bands, all from the Halifax area, starting with a group called Carney Lake Road. Very obscure. I don't expect anyone to know it. Jay and I were both in it. That's right. I've been playing with Jay since 87. We're from Halifax. We came up, played the Rivoli to no one, mind you. Interviewed by Erica M. for very exciting. For Indie Street on Much Music, which I think was on at three in the morning on Sunday nights. And so we came home with VHS in hand. We were proof we were on Much Music and we were just the kings. I think there was a ticker tape parade. Uh, yeah, I think so. Halifax Someone was not was that happening at the time. <laughs> and there was a band called Blackpool. Here's a story about how producer Terry Brown, a guy who worked with Rush and some of their biggest records, ended up working with them. Blackpool it was a whole thing without me. I'm not, not to distance myself, but I wasn't really the, the person that put that band together. But I did learn a lot in that band. They split the money equally and stuff and something that we do too. And, and uh, they, they had some good songs. It was more kind of a roots rock band, but at the time I was still into hardcore basically. And I, wanted to, I thought it was kind of uncool to be in that band. Looking back now, I think actually the record that I played on, which was called We The Living, it was actually pretty cool. I joined that band because Terry Brown was coming to town. He wanted to record a band and get a bunch of nerds to come in and pay a hundred bucks each to watch him work kind of thing, one of these things. And so I'm playing bass and, and we played live off the floor. And I was like, that's perfect. We're going to redo the bass. And so I had to come into the, <laughs> to the record booth with him surrounded by nerds and just playing, sweating my ass off. But I was letting strings ring. So as I was playing, Terry Brown had to mute every string I wasn't playing. And all I could think of, he's, he's recorded with Getty Lee. This is the worst <laughs> moment of my life. And I, every time I tried to play something other than the root, he would say, no, just footballs. And so I still use that to this day. Football's just hanging on the, on the route. Terry Brown, awesome. And I asked him a bunch of Rush stories, and he kept saying that he wasn't interested in talking about Rush. He just wanted to talk about that he had been there when The Who recorded Substitute. And I think he was there for the Trogs recording Wild Thing. Anyway, there's some history. Here's the track Chris is talking about. Blackpool with We the Living. She says, yeah, it was easy to do, but not so easily done. the pre-sloan band called blackpool now Here's how Sloan itself came together. Carney Lake Road was over. That's I right. almost beat up Jay on stage at the art school. He's being such a jerk. Yeah, you want to relive that? No, no, that, that's fair anyway, point. Anyway, um, in the meantime, I started playing with Andrew and another fella. We played around town. And then Andrew was visiting in Toronto. Jay and I said, you know what? When Andrew gets back, we're going to make a band, the three of us. And we tried to come up with some band names and stuff. This is 1990. Andrew was away, I think. And he came back right. like for Christmas, yeah. and we started playing together, the three of us. And we were trying to figure out who we'd get for a fourth person. Not, none of us knew Patrick very well, but we knew that he was in a band called Happy Co. And I knew that he could play guitar, and I knew that he could sing. And I was the guitar player at the time. I was like, yeah, we need a bass player. And within about a year, I was, I was demoted, I guess, to bass, because <laughs> Patrick was actually better than I am. 
but it was the worst mistake we ever made. Because now he's always above the, the 27th fret playing some... Just football, man. Just ridiculous. football. <laughs> Just football. Where's Terry Brown when you need him? Okay, Sloan is an odd name for a band. So where did that come from? It's funny you should ask. Jay has a great story about that. Sloan was, uh, he was a bass player in a band from New Brunswick. Uh, no. They're called the Straight Jackets. No, they're from. They lived in Bedford. Okay, yeah, Bedford. But that was sort of in New Brunswick as far <laughs> no, as I was concerned. It was not. But actually, <laughs> they were the suburbs. They were the band that Carney Lake Road went on tour on. They were the headline act. Straight Jackets was what they were called. They had a record out. It was very exciting. They had a vinyl record on DTK Records, uh, and that came out in about 1989 or something. That's right. Yeah, they were superstars as far as I was concerned. Yeah, they actually had a record, and uh, their bass player, his nickname, he worked. I think for a while, they they eventually moved to. Montreal, and he worked like in a warehouse or something like that. And his French boss used to call the bass player Jason Larson used to they used to call him Slow One, and with a French accent, it just turned into Sloan, like whatever. I mean, that doesn't sound French, but uh, he <laughs> ended up with that Bonjour. nickname. <laughs> I don't want to brag, but anyhow, we uh, stole so his, his nickname. His basically. nickname became Sloan, and then we stole his nickname. And his it's face kind of boring, eh? is on the cover of our first release, which was the Peppermint EP. Peppermint EP. That's, that's his face. Yeah. The face of Jason Larson. AKA Sloan. But also it's the name of Ferris Bueller's girlfriend in the movie Ferris Bueller's yes, Day Yes, it is, Off. and it's also the name of the of the urinals that often- Unfortunately, yes. That we all pee in, that a lot of us pee in. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with us. Although, quick aside, the Sloan Valve Company that makes the toilet flushers and the, thing, the urinals, some kid in Chicago, where this company is based, invited one of them one of the people from that company to our show and there's a picture of us trade they brought us like a flusher and and us giving them a bunch of records there's a picture some yeah. the fanzine sort of set that up The original version of Underwhelmed from Sloan's debut release, which was called the Peppermint EP. I don't know about you, but the first time I ever heard that word was in that song. Did they invent it? I actually think it was a word the whole time, but uh, I hear it from time to time, and and sometimes nobody really uses it to me. Every time I hear it, I go, huh? But uh, so I hear (laughs) it. I have some people when they mention it, and I expect them to look at me and go. (laughs) But when they but when they don't, then I'm like, oh. But really, what they're doing is they're calling me because I wrote it. Anyway, whatever. That's right. So we have underwhelmed, overwhelmed. Is anybody just whelmed? When I met Jay, I think that was a state that I would, I could, I got nothing. Um, How boring. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I tried. It was around this time that the band decided to form their own record label. Basically, we had already sort of been talking to Geffen, or DGC in the United States, about about our band being signed to their label. We had already made a record in Halifax in a house. So there was sort of a record to go, but just because of red tape and major labels, it takes a long time. They're like, well, maybe we'll put it out in the fall of 1992. Or no, we'll put it out early 93. And we're like, oh, this is the spring of 92, basically. So we're like, we were itching to have something out. Mm. So basically we thought, well, you know what? We want to release some songs that are going to be on the album and some that aren't and just put it out on our own so that we can tour and play shows instead of waiting another three quarters of a year. So that's why we started Murder Records, was just to put out that EP. And then there was other bands that we knew of that we were friends with, and also our co-manager at the time, Peter Rowan, was also involved with managing, like Eric's Trip and Hardship Post. And uh, we eventually put out their records as well. Now this brings us to the point where Sloan suddenly found themselves being courted by 
Nirvana's record label. A story about how that happened is next. Welcome back, I'm Alan Cross, and we're listening to Chris Murphy and Jay Ferguson of Sloan tell the band's history in their own words. How, for example, did a little indie band from Nova Scotia end up signing to Nirvana's record label? We made a recording in a house, and it was coming up to the East Coast Music Awards. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Like out on the East Coast, and there's like some people from different labels come out there. And I think we were going to set up our own show at an art gallery. It was kind of like not official showcase. We were just going to set up our own show and uh, wanted to invite some people from different record labels who were coming. Um, I found the name of this guy, Cam Carpenter, who used to do A&R at MCA here in Canada back before it was Universal. And uh, I sent him a cassette with three or four songs on it and just uh, said, hey, here's our band. We like Sonic Youth and da-da-da, like as if we're really cool. And uh, he came to see us play. And then we ended up playing another show there as well. And then another guy, he told his friend Rick Arboit, who worked at Network, to come, hey, check out this band. He liked our tape. And uh, his hands were tied. I don't think he could do anything in Canada at MCA for us. And he sent it to a friend of his, Todd Sullivan at Geffen, who loved the song Underwhelmed, and then came to see his play. And then was like, do you guys want to sign to Geffen? And we're like, holy crap. And this all happened so quickly. And in the meantime, we had been offered a deal by Network Records, mm-hmm. which when that was coming off the fax machine, we, it was hard not to just sign it right away because nothing happens like that to bands from Halifax you know let alone Canada especially for DGC but for a band from Halifax and it where was Nirvana's it was like, label it no, was Sonic Youth we, we, we loved those bands like no. Teenage Fan Club and yeah like Nirvana Sonic Youth it was we were aware of like it was sort shocking, of uh, yeah. oh you're supposed to be on an indie first and then you go you know, we knew the Nirvana story we knew what college radio was and how you're supposed to do it properly but because Geffen was calling it was like well what would we be waiting for if, if we could be on Geffen now. So it yeah. was like the coolest place in the world to be. Well, I guess we couldn't really tell, like once we started hanging out in Toronto more, we could tell what was actually happening. In, in Halifax, it's so small, like we really knew everybody who was into cool music, we could name them by name. And I guess there was a, a, a steady flow of, of college kids that came through that we didn't know everybody, but like, we weren't really getting played on the radio or anything out there. Really, not then. I mean, like we've had some radio support since, but it was all college radio and all very small time seeming at yeah. the time. But uh, but it was very exciting. And when we signed to Geffen, it was it was insane. Like there was, uh, we we toured on a tour bus. Like the, the tour bus came into town, and it was as if it dwarfed all the buildings as it was. Halifax is small, so we were king for a while there in Halifax. But we really tried to be gracious about it and really tried part of the expanding Murder Records and putting out other records was to an effort to be a part of the community where we were, you know, our, all of a sudden our aspirations changed to being national or international. But before it was like we wanted to be the coolest band in town. And, and so we were trying to do that, but at the same time trying to still be friends and connected to all of, of the scene which had existed before you know, ground zero when we were signed. Like there was so many, there was a prehistory to all that too. But it was nice to be able to try and share the opportunity that we'd been given, like bring those bands on tour with us or put their records out. It was a real communal sort of thing happening back then. It was, was Eric's trip, I guess, you did a split seven inch with him. That's That's right. right. Eric's trip were cooler than us, but no, there were a lot of great bands in this band, Hardship Post. They were the best live band. They were insanely good. And Thresh Hermit, uh, who who gives you Joel Plaskett now, those guys were kids. They were 16 or whatever. And, uh, you know, we, whatever, I don't know how much we had to do with their thing, but they were just young kids and we gave them an opportunity maybe to put out a record that they might not have otherwise had. And brought them, yeah, and brought them on tour and stuff like that. But uh, got a lot of press and stuff. It was a totally exciting time. Kill me, kill me, kill me. 
Sloan from their second record, Twice Removed, which sounded substantially less fuzzy and more poppy than the first couple of records. Why? Well, I would say it was, I, I feel it was almost a, well, maybe from my perspective, it was a little bit of a result of touring smeared. We, we toured that record for so long. It, it was, it was kind of just the sound du jour. Like, I think a lot of the records that really influenced us for smeared was, you know, sort of the best parts of Nirvana, but also the best parts of what was going on in England at the time, like My Bloody Valentine and, and Ride and all those sort of noisy pop bands that were on creation records and everything. And then I think that sound, we'd sort of been, maybe wanted to do something different and and everything that was on radio at that time was smashing pumpkins or just really loud guitars and maybe it was a career suicide to try and take a, a different turn on twice removed which was quieter guitars more I, I think some of the records we were listening to more were like Fleetwood Mac or the the third Velvet Underground album which are sort of quieter records you know and I think we wanted plastic to band. what's that plastic, plastic band? band yeah and, and like more Beatles came out on that record too so I think it was more just trying to distance ourselves from what was just becoming a pile of the same stuff. You know but then I mean? that album becomes one of the, the favorite Sloan albums in the entire discography. I mean, everybody still goes back to Twice Removed saying that that's, you know, one of your one or two best ever. Oh, it's nice to hear. I have my own sort of, we argue about this. No, but I agree. But I say, I, I think partly because it was career suicide and that we failed miserably financially, like everything fell apart. Um, I think people love to get behind that. It's like, yeah, this is the record you don't know. Everybody knows Smeared. I know mm -hmm. Twice Removed. But it's gone on to sell probably as many as Smeared. But Right. But uh, I think it was probably seen as a daring move or something, or that we somehow, you know, because like it's been, because, it, yeah. because it is true that Geffen, when they heard it, they were like, what are, you, "Are you serious? Like this is a different band. It's going to be hard for us to market you. Please, you know, consider redoing the whole thing." And then we stood our ground. So that's a good story because um, it makes it sound like we're sticking it to the man or whatever. But uh, it was also sounds great. It was made in Lenny Kravitz's studio. It was all, all with his analog board. Yeah, and all with all that Beatles gear and yeah. all that stuff. It was all very exciting and expensive. For years, like our first record cost twelve hundred bucks, then the second record cost one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, then the next record cost eight thousand bucks. <laughs> it's like that was that was all of the, that cost more than the first three or four records combined. After Twice Removed, things began to uh, well, they began to fall apart. This was when the breakup rumors started. On April the 1st, 1995, a story was carried on the newswire. Sloan disbands. Halifax grunge pop sensation may be calling it quits. Band manager Chip Sutherland says there's an element of truth to the rumors, that the band feels that Geffen Records hasn't adequately promoted their album in the United States. Drummer Andrew Scott's relocation to Toronto has also made it difficult to work as a group. But Sutherland says the real reason the four members of Sloan are contemplating breaking up is they're not certain they want to continue to live under a big label contract. Under Sloan's contract, Geffen has until March to exercise their option for two more albums. Band members are giving themselves until then to decide if they want to continue as a group. Now, that sounded serious. At a show in Halifax, Chris Murphy even announced that this was going to be Sloan's last show. And it was for a while. Everyone went off to do something else. Chris toured with a band called the Super Friends. Andrew had a few gigs with bands called the Sadies and Maker's Mark. Jay spent some time working at Murder Records and co-managed the Inbreds. And Patrick, he worked on his songwriting. What was going on? Well, what actually happened at the end of Twice Removed, at the end of 1994, we basically said we were breaking up. And there was, we got all this press out of the fact that, are they breaking up or not? It was like this whole sto a real story. As a band that was broken up, we, had, we were on Geffen and we were signed to something like six records or something like that, which is uh, not really in our favor. It meant that, that anything we would do after the band means that Geffen would have first right of refusal on. 
which puts us in a, a bad position anyway. We didn't want to say that we were breaking up because it meant that there would be a new set of rules applied to us as a broken up band and a band that was still together. And so we were telling Geffen we're not broken up because we didn't want to be basically screwed over contractually. But we had broken up, basically, and we were kind of running murder records and putting out other records from our area. And then just over the course of the next year, we weren't really fighting, we were just frustrated with things. And we, we decided, you know what would really help murder records if we did another Sloan record? So we was like, okay, well then we have to go back and tell Geffen we're not broken up. So we went back to Geffen and they said that they were interested in putting the record out. And I was frustrated because I didn't feel like they were actually very interested at all. And we were very close to, I think there are even, did you end up with a, a printed version no. of a Geffen record of no. one chord to another? I don't think Do so. they exist? I, I don't know. If they do, they'd be very nerdily rare. But, <laughs> uh, but we were very close. But in the end, Geffen was just cool. Like, first of all, they don't need, they, they made tons of money, so they didn't really need us, but they were really artist friendly and cool, and they said, just, just go, we're not gonna hold you to your contract. And we, and we signed to this other label called The Enclave, which was short-lived, which is set up to be really good. It had like Bell and Sebastian, mm -hmm. like the Water Boys, mm -hmm. and somebody, they, like they, there was this boutique label with tons of money. It was Tom Zutat, the guy who was the mentor of Todd Sullivan, who had signed us to Geffen originally. So I think that he had a bit of a mandate. He was gonna like, I'm gonna make these guys, I'm gonna show Geffen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make these guys a big hit. Anyway, that all went, that label went under in about six months. So we didn't have a lot of luck with the American label. So we weren't on Geffen anymore, and we were on the Enclave, the Enclave goes under. Now it's 1997, and we've recorded Navy Blues, so we just put it out ourselves. The next couple of records we just put out ourselves in the States and in Canada. We've been, we're on Murder Records the whole time in Canada after the two Geffen records. One Court to Another, sorry, is in, on Murder Records in Canada. And then we get the rights back in Canada to, to Smeared and, and Twice Removed. So we have the whole catalog on Murder Records. Thank you very much. And uh, never really had a real boost in the States after that, I would argue. Don't you start, yeah, yeah. Don't you start. Don't you start. Sloan with the lines you amend from their one chord to another album. Here's a weird thing about that record. All four members of Sloan never appeared in the same studio together while making that entire record. Chris, Jay, and Patrick did all the instrumental parts in Toronto and then sent the tapes to Andrew in Halifax. He'd find a studio, add all the drum parts, and then send the tapes back to Toronto. 1996 ended up being a pretty good year for Sloan. They wanted Juno. Chart Magazine named Twice Removed as the number one Canadian album of all time, and Underwhelmed was picked as the number two Canadian song of all time. Although it didn't sell tons of copies in the United States, the CD did help the band strengthen their fan base. Rolling Stone Magazine reviewed the album, and they gave it a very respectable three and a half out of five stars. They played a series of high-profile gigs, too. The bad news, as Chris said earlier, is that this new U.S. label called The Enclave went out of business. The good news is that Sloan successfully fought to stay independent. They also got the rights to their music back, which, as you heard, is something the band is pretty proud of. With the exception of the double record Never Hear the End of It and the live album Four Nights at the Palais Royale, Sloan albums tend to be short and sweet. A long Sloan record is 45 minutes, but the average is somewhere around the, well, high 30s. Their ninth studio record was their shortest, at just over 37 minutes. They called it Parallel Play. 
Here's Chris Murphy and Jay Ferguson. Well, Parallel Play, I'll start you with the title, is a reference to a child psychology, is a child psychology term about children between one and three that play beside each other, but they don't interact. So it's sort of a joke on the way that the band sort of uh, maybe behaves either on stage or off. I mean, everybody, like I said, sings and writes in the band. And often sometimes there'll be, like Andrew, for example, will probably play all the instruments on his own songs. So anyway, they're kind of solo songs. But that's kind of the way we've worked for a long time. But I think it's a good term, and it kind of applies to this record, because we had to make it kind of quick. And so everybody just, well, I know how to play the guitar on my own song. I'll just do it. So there's not a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, there is collaboration to a point, but I think the, the title is pretty apt. But yeah, regulation back to 12 songs, mostly just because. 13 songs, yeah. 13, yeah. Because, uh, you know what I mean. We could have spent more time. Last time we wanted to have a record out at a certain time, and then just because of some stuff that was going on, we had to push it back, and then we just kept recording, and we just decided to put it all out. I've been threatening to do a double album since 1998. I consider Navy Blues and Between the Bridges almost a double album because they were done close together at the same place, and I only wrote one new song for this new record. It was as if it was a double record to me. It'll be reissued as a double record. <laughs> No. Um, so we are back to our sort of egalitarian, like everybody sort of had four songs that they were working on and we, at some point we decided we're, it was sort of decided we were running out of time and money and we just, oh, we'll make it three each, 12 song record, but Andrew, Andrew wouldn't, he was like, I'm doing four, I don't care what you get. Even though the record was mastered, he's still mixing his songs, like, no, wait for me, and even though we could have sent it off and met our deadlines, he's like, nope. No, I'm just kidding. Well, it's true. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not angry about it. And we're just learning how to play it now, and I like it. We'll yeah, imagine yeah. that for our last album, 30 songs. It was like, well, we got to go on tour, boys. i got to learn 30 songs. But we tried to <laughs> learn. We learned we were pl routinely playing 22 or something. Yeah, no, new songs. no, we were able to do it. But it you're right. It's like most bands know how to play the record, and then they go make the record. Mm. But we're opposite. Like, I basically have to go buy the record to learn how to play the album. <laughs> <laughs> go home and listen to it. But ever since Andrew, we, we grew up in Halifax, and Andrew moved to Toronto in 1993. So ever since then, it's been sort of like that. Sort of got to the point where we encouraged everyone to, to sing and write and contribute creatively and uh, to keep the band together, split the money equally, another good thing to do. So we've all kind of evolved into this band that writes sort of individually. There's a bit of, like, Jay and I will play each other our demos and, and talk about it and stuff. We have our own practice space that we recorded our last album, Never Hear the End of It, the 30 song opus and the new one parallel play we recorded them at our rehearsal studio yeah so we See, have our own compare studio compare that to the hundred twenty thousand dollars on the second album right well yeah, this, is, this is the yes. thing yeah well is it where yeah i wouldn't have spent that much money at the time but it was someone else's money it's one of those major label things the first record we made which was on gap and we made with the aspirations of trying to make a thousand cds or something or 500 mm -hmm. and then we it got picked up and remixed by geffen so you know that cost us twelve hundred dollars i like to make everything on the cheap so that it can be seen as a success. Well, how many records did it sell? Well, how much did it cost? Because, you know, we only sold X amount of records, but it, we made it for nothing. But uh, not, not, not so little money that it's not good. Mm. Yeah, how boring. <laughs> oh, yeah, say what you want. It's all a shame to me. Look out for yourself. with Believe In Me, the first single from their 2008 album, Parallel Play. So, 
Sloan's been around since 1991. Nine studio albums, the live record, the greatest hits collection, the videos, the DVDs, the rarities, the bonus tracks, the tours. Now what? Here's Chris Murphy. Our plans are to uh, to keep working. We, you know, sometimes I remember in, in 1999, it felt like we hadn't gone up, like we're playing the same places across Canada, like we sort of going up a little bit and then we were playing the same places and I was frustrated. I was like, how come we're not getting any bigger? We're bettering all these crap ass bands and uh, and we weren't getting any bigger. But na- but then I sort of changed my tune to, oh, well, at least, we, at least we're still playing to anybody because a lot of the bands that we started with you know, we were given a major leg up by signing to Geffen, and we had a lot of press in Halifax and Seattle and all that baloney. Like, it was, all, that whole story basically belonged to us. There were a lot of bands that maybe benefited from it, but they really, they always got saddled, basically, by, by being little buddies of ours. And uh, so we, we've been very fortunate. And so we're happy to just be still a band and still playing, and no one's really screwed up. and and. Uh, we're built to last, we'll last forever. Why wouldn't we, we just record on our practice space? Come back, talk to you, provided you, nothing happens to you, we'll be back here in 10 years. <laughs> I got no place to go. <laughs> just to have a, an enormous body of work so that Mojo Magazine finally goes, we are sorry. We never wrote about you guys, and you guys are unbelievable, and you have all this stuff, and nobody knows. But Mojo Magazine, or Record Collector Magazine, exactly yeah. the publications that would do something like that, especially if you collected everything in a box set. Now you're talking. We'll get to work on that. You know what? If we had a huge hit, I have great ideas for repackaging and reissuing everything. But until then, I don't know if it's worth, like, the audience, I think, would be too small to, to warrant a ridiculous box set and coffee table book. But I have enough, I, we, we have everything and we own everything and we're ready to go on that. Well, thank you guys for coming, I really appreciate it. I know that we're <laughs> gonna hear something from the new record. Yes. You're gonna play something live here? Yes. Yeah. And uh, what's the song called? We're gonna do a song called Living the Dream. And it's a song that Patrick says, he can't even say the word out loud because he thinks it's something that jocks say. He says, you might as well have called the song Hurtin' Unit. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think jocks say it. So who, who and I wrote, hate jocks. Who wrote this? I did. Okay, so you're going to play your song. Well, Jay's going to, we're going to play it together. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, I appreciate you coming. Good luck with the new Thanks record. Thanks for having the tour and everything. Thanks for coming by, and uh, we'll do this again sometime. Making yep. history so that we can report on it. <laughs> Jay, would you play along with me while I sing a song called Living the Dream? I would love to. Okay, well, let's do it. One, two, three, four... so fast you ever believe the way he passed? The live record, Four Nights at the Palais Royale, was a peak for Sloan. Their second real peak since they were formed in 1991. It was up, then it was down, and then up again. So, where did things go from here? Well, do you have to ask? Well, don't worry, it all works out in the end. We'll cover everything. Plus, we'll get to some exclusive live acoustic recordings on part two of this history of Sloan as told by them. Thanks to Natalia, Andrew, Adam, and Mike for help with this show. And thanks, obviously, to Chris and Jay from Sloan, too. And Rob Johnson, who's in charge of technical production. We'll see you next time for part two. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. 
subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.